Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians and uh, find your place there in chapter 11 again. We've mentioned this will be our final installment in our series that we entitled Table Manners. And we're talking about communion relevancy and trying to restore the reverence and the power and all the necessary things back uh, to the table in particular, but really to all the ordinances in the life of the church. It's not just, it's not just dead ritual. If all we're practicing is dead ritual, then we're no better than the Israelites who just kept the temple sacrificial system going and it was all just dead ritual. So we're doing our best to see God quicken the things of his table again and hopefully uh, we've addressed that and hopefully we will retain that. Can you at least say amen? I will retain that. Come on, we want to keep what we've learned and not keep learning over and over and over again the elementary things. So let's try to retain these things. And I was greatly encouraged. We've uh, alluded to that already this morning. Greatly encouraged that last Sunday, uh, many folk came and gave testimony to being healed. I probably received, if I could count it up, I don't know, six to eight to ten other testimonies of people who uh, God touched and healed their bodies in some form or fashion. Not everybody is just real anxious to run in front of a microphone and give testimony, but we appreciate all those good testimonies and glad that God is doing that. And uh, I'm just pressing further and pressing more deeply into uh, what God would like to do. And, And those miracles that are taking place from the table of the Lord, you understand that is to be the norm. We've sort of developed a church life that if God heals or moves, that's like the exception. And and we need to break out of that mentality that the norm should be God shows up in the midst of his people. That should be the norm. Shouldn't be the exception to the rule. The exception should be when we have sort of a, 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 a dead atmosphere or a dead church, then we all ought to scratch our heads and say, what did we do wrong? Because God's heart is to move towards his people. And uh, miracles amongst God's people We're never meant to be sporadic. The Bible teaches us that there were times, even when Jesus was uh, in his earthly ministry, there were times it says that he healed a few. There are other times the scripture said that he healed many. And then there, there were those moments where he said that he healed all. And I'm going for all. We got to get back to the all season. In fact, the Bible tells us that even in his earthly ministry, it says that the power of the Lord was present to heal which tells me that maybe it wasn't always present to heal. There were times Jesus was restricted by what he could do. For instance, in Nazareth, his hometown, because um, there was unbelief and familiarity. And because of that familiarity, because as you'll recall the account, when Jesus came back to his hometown, everybody said, well, what's the big deal? This is just uh, the carpenter's son. And because all they could see was the carpenter's son, they never received revelation, nor did they receive miracles in Nazareth because they could not see beyond the natural and they had become familiar with Jesus. They'd seen him grow up. They'd seen him, I don't know what they did in the first century, you know, when the kids played. I don't know if they played ball or they threw rocks. or I'm, I, I'm sure kids do, did then what they do now. They, they made up games, hard telling what they did. They saw Jesus grow up before them. And because he was familiar, they missed a Savior. Now listen to me, there's a great point here. If things become familiar, we will miss power. 
And so that's what we're endeavoring to do, to break familiarity off some things in order that we can receive again the power God intended to happen. And so uh, I'm just believing every time uh, we have communion from this time forward, I'm just I'm just speaking those things that be not as though they were. I'm believing every time from this point forward, people are going to get healed and people are going to get delivered. It was never meant to be a sporadic thing. In fact, in September, when we get to our new teaching series, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And uh, and I'm going to deal with with why I believe God still works the same as he did uh, all through the scripture, because the scripture says he's the same yesterday, today and forever. Amen. So the supernatural dimension is what we're endeavoring to see restored here. If we don't have a supernatural dimension, you understand we're just another club. I mean, what distinguishes us from the Kiwanis or the Lions Club or any other civic organization? What distinguishes us from them? Some of them do great works. What distinguishes us? Well, what distinguishes us is that there is a presence of God, the ministry of the Lord, the work of the Lord... Redemption's being declared, power's being demonstrated, and if these things are not there, then we're no better than an earthly club. And so we're going to go after it one more time this morning. The question this morning is this, after all we've been through, how do you maintain the power and the presence of the Lord on the table? Seeing how both of the Corinthians, which we will soon read about again here in church history, seem to illustrate that's not an easy proposition. How do we maintain a sense of his presence and power on the table? And so this morning, we're going to talk about self-examination and how the table is maintained. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians, you should be in chapter 11. If not, it will be posted on the screen overhead so you can follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 27. It's just easier for me to read it on the screen. Therefore... Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Then lastly, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Last verse. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order, Paul writes, when I come. self examination. Now, let's just review real quick and get up to speed and then we'll go after this. We've already exhausted in previous weeks the context of the Corinthian church, which was out of order. In fact, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, this first letter, it was just simply a correction letter. Everything you can imagine had gotten out of order at the church at Corinth. And so he's writing a letter with apostolic authority back to these believers in Corinth. And he's trying to get things back into some godly order and uh, in line with where it needed to be. 
Remember in the first chapters, there's sectarianism. They think that that some are better than others. They think, you know, we're better because we follow Apollos. We're better because we follow Paul. We're better because we follow Cephas. Well, we're better because we just follow Jesus, you know. And so everybody has their view and there's this sectarianism that he declares to be sin. He goes after them with regards to their character. They're, they're functioning in immorality. I mean, there's some despicable things that are going on with regards to their morals within the life of Corinth. Then they were litigating with each other. They weren't settling these things within the life of the church. They were taking each other to court, litigating. Uh, they were having marriage issues. They were violating the concepts of liberty with license. You know, Jesus gives us liberty, but they were turning their liberty into something that was causing uh, other believers or fellow believers to stumble. And so he had to deal with that issue. He had to deal with the gifts of the Spirit and how the gifts of the Spirit were to operate. He even had to deal with there towards the end, the resurrection and the doctrine of the resurrection because they were messing that up as well. In fact, uh, he even lets them know how to take the offering up. In chapter 16, he goes into the offering and this is how the offering should happen. And so as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, it seems like there's not any area that the Corinthian believers had not somehow messed up. And what it all can be boiled down to, I think, is this. They had become flippant with everything. Nothing was revered anymore. Nothing held a special place of reverence. Nothing held a special place of honor. Um, everything had just become this flippant thing we do and in turn it had grieved the heart of God it had grieved the apostle and in fact what he says concerning the table of the Lord is this because you have flippantly uh, dealt with this he said within the congregation many of you are weak many of you are sick and some of you are dying before you should be dying now think about that for just a minute they're not handling the table right and this judgment so to speak is coming upon the house. Now, many times people get this confused and they say to themselves, well, why would God be making people sick? And why would God be making them weak? And why would God, you know, be killing everybody? Listen, God's not doing any of this. You understand, we live in a fallen world. You and I are under a curse. We, we are born fallen. And truth of the matter is, without the sustaining, life-giving power of Jesus working in my heart, I am subject to calamity at any moment. The only thing that gives me my next breath is my God. The only thing that keeps me safe from walking out those glass doors and to my car and not getting run over by another vehicle or crazed person behind uh, the steering wheel is my God who puts His uh, protective ministering servants around me. You understand where I'm going with this? I mean, if it was not for God, some of you would be dead right now. You'd be dead in a ditch, and you know that to be true. I said, man, if it wasn't for the Lord, God only knows what I would be doing or what I would be in or what problems I would be having. So listen to me. And, and listen, if you got in an automobile accident, especially before you knew the Lord, and, and, and somebody looks at it and says, why did God let this happen? Let me tell you something. God isn't making accidents happen. We live in a fallen world. Good is not the norm. Evil is the norm. That's why the scripture says that every good and perfect thing comes from the Father above. Evil isn't intruding into your life. Evil is the norm of your life. It's God's goodness that's intruding into your life. Are you following me? 
I always listen to the news broadcasters and many of the news broadcasters always consternate over the problem of evil. Why is there so much evil? Why, why, why? Read your Bible. This whole world is under a curse. Why don't you consternate over why good enters into your life? Why don't you stop and ask yourself, why are you breathing today? Why don't you ask yourself, why are you happy today? Why don't you ask yourself, why you got a job today? Why don't you ask yourself why you get to sit in front of a meal and probably eat more than you should be eating? That's the goodness of God intervening in our lives. Evil is not the intruder. God is the one that breaks through. Now listen, I said all that to say this. God isn't making people sick because they're being flippant. God just simply withdraws His presence and He says, then you just go for it and you're left with yourself. Now, let me tell you something. That ought to scare everybody to be left by yourself. Left by yourself. When you're left by yourself, what happens? You're weak. You're sick. And you die before your time. That's what happens when you're left to your own devices. But if God comes back into the equation, He will strengthen. He will heal. And he will give you longevity of life in order to fulfill his purposes in your life to completion. That's what was going on around the table of the Lord. They'd become flippant in this thing. And unfortunately, because they were strong in the gifts, but short on character, it tends to be most applicable to our kind of churches. You know, our churches, we're a full gospel church and we believe in the present power and moving of God. And unfortunately in our churches, whether it's deserved or not, I guess it's got that reputation. We're big on gifts, but sometimes we're short on character. And we need to change that. And changing that doesn't mean you get rid of gifts in order to get character. It, it, it's embrace the, the, the power of God, but let's embrace righteousness and holiness and character too. Your arms are big enough to grab all that charismatic history. Let me just give you a little history lesson here. You know, the Holy Spirit, it's interesting if you'll just study history. The Holy Spirit back in the, the 60s and the 70s was moving in all sorts of various denominations and fellowships. And, and one of the things that I've just noticed sort of reviewing it and studying it is that because the Holy Spirit moved, you know, he moved on Methodists and he moved on Baptists and he moved on Episcopalians and he moved on Presbyterians and all sorts of different backgrounds and denominations. And what happened was, is that as he was moving in all these churches and they were experiencing this thing with the Holy Spirit, there was no a doctrinal consistency because the glue that kept all this together was the relationship everyone felt with each other because they had this similar experience. And so you'd have Presbyterians who were filled with the Spirit, who were five-point Calvinists, and then you had Methodists who were filled with the Spirit, and they were more Arminian in their understanding, and, and, and they didn't really think much about the doctrinal strangeness of their relationship. They just knew that they both had this experience with the Holy Spirit, and that was sort of the glue that kept them together. Now, saying that does not mean that somehow we all have to have uniformity in what we believe. That's never going to happen. I, I, I mean, it's just, you, you won't find even the... The disciples finding exact uniformity 
in everything, and, and we're not given exact uniformity. In fact, the Bible never says that we're to have perfect doctrine. It says that we're to have sound doctrine, which means healthy doctrine. And so there's no way we're all ever going to get on exactly the same page. There are some essentials. There are some bottom line truths, certainly. But what happened was, I'm just telling you about our circles now, because we got people coming in from Presbyterian backgrounds and Methodist backgrounds and Lutheran backgrounds and Catholic backgrounds and no background and this and that and the other. What happened is in our circles, I'm just giving you history It's an observation. What we did was we just said, let's keep it superficial. Let's keep it shallow. Let's not throw any subject out here that could get anybody aggravated or irritated. And let's just make sure we just don't touch on anything that would cause some theological alienation. And so what happened in all of that was we began to appease people. Now, I've had people ask me through the years, well, they say, Pastor, What do you do when you come up to certain subjects in the Bible and there's differences of opinion? Like, I mean, how are you going to teach, you know, security? you got some people that believe in absolute, you know, uh, sovereign declaration security and and some believe that that it's possible to lose uh, your salvation. How do you deal with that? Well, I'll tell you how I deal with it. When I come to a security passage, I'll preach security. And when I come to a passage that says the soul that sinneth, it shall die, I'll look at you and say the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You say, well, what do you believe? We're going to let God sort that one out. Because if you want to practice your sinning, then go ahead. We'll see if your doctrine's right or not when it's all said and done. Be confident in it. I'm just going to declare it like it is. Are you pre-millennial, post-millennial, or amillennial? I'm pan-millennial. It's all going to pan out anyway, so I just... But having said all of that, I'm trying to get to a really serious point here. And my serious point is, is that because we've just decided to just kind of, you know, just kind of touch the tops and not get too deep and, 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 and not try to do anything that could potentially alienate anybody, what happens is, is we just, we're just casual about everything. We're just casual about how we come to the house of God. We're casual about how we approach the Lord. We're casual about... Even the rituals of the church were, were almost flippant and irreverent. We brush it off by just saying, well, you know, we're just, we're just the casual church here. We just focus on, you know, just a couple things, but we're casual. Listen, we're casualing our way right out of the power of God. Because there's a difference between, between come as you are and, and, and coming casual, and, and there's a difference between being irreverent and being flippant. I mean, there is a difference. You notice I took my coat off today. I'm moving along in this thing, man. Now, the question is, if we, if we can see the table restored, we talked about that last week, then how can we maintain it? This is what Paul said. Paul said, let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself. Can I just say right now, wow. Isn't that kind of like the fox guard in the hen house? You know, I started thinking about this. You know, some people, when they hear that, that will be the easiest test they ever take. Because they let themselves off every hook known to man. That'll be the easiest test they ever take. Now, for others, it may be the most difficult test they ever take. 
because they live under this burden of never measuring up. And so the question is, let a man examine himself. Well, how in the world do you let a man examine himself? Think about that. Isn't that just kind of an incredible risk, God, that you're taking here? Is it even possible? I think it's one of the most relevant questions we have he, here in the 21st century because we allow really so little direction to come to us from our church pulpits or our pastors. I, I believe a person may be able to examine himself, but you at least have to know what the test is over. You know, now I'm going to be honest enough to say that, that the pastors of this nation in the 21st century, by and large, not everyone, and, and I fellowship with a lot of them that would not fall in this category, but there are a lot of men of God, women of God, pastors of this nation. I'm just going to say it out loud. It is time pastors got a backbone again. You need a pastor with a backbone. A pastor that will stand up and tell you something you don't want to hear, but you need to hear. You, you, you need one of those. The clergy has become better at flattery and man-pleasing than even the politicians. And it's a sad day when politicians have more courage to speak truth than the preachers do. Now, I'll say that because I is one. But let me say this, it's not all the pastor's fault because we live in an era where the majority of people really don't want direction birthed out of truth in their life. We have turned the truth of the priesthood of the believer into this. I can develop my own doctrine. I, I'm a, I believe in the priesthood of the believer. I can access God. I know Jesus personally. I can follow him. It's me and Jesus. Therefore, I can develop my own doctrines. I can spiritually do my own thing. I don't need any input from anybody just as long as it's me and Jesus. And what we do is, is we create our own little isolated viewpoint on spirituality and self-determine it is as valid as anything else. It's valid because I believe it. This is what I believe. Well, I believe this. Go watch Oprah. I believe this. <laughs> and I want to say, so? Is, is that where we're at? We just sort of just generate our own personal doctrine? We tend to forget what the Bible says in 2 Peter 1.20 says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means this, that, that while you may hear new revelation from God, it certainly should be subject to the orthodoxy of the years. What that means is, is if you're the only one believing it, and because there's nothing new under the sun. And if you're the only one that's ever heard this, knows this, gets this, let me tell you something. All I'm saying is, is you better ask yourself the question. If you're the only one God has shown this to, why? Are you following me? But we've isolated ourselves. And to even attempt to help people in self-examination, you will always hear a part of the verse that everyone knows. It's the only verse that the world knows. Everyone knows this verse. It's Matthew 7, uh, verse 1a. Because they don't even read the rest of the verse. It's Matthew 7, 1a, and it's this one. You're judging me. 
Isn't that amazing? The world doesn't know any verse. Oh, they know cleanliness is next to godliness. They know that verse. (laughs) Some of you will get that later. The only verse they know, though, is, is, I know what the Bible says about judging. You're judging me. They don't know any other verse. They don't know any verse on holiness, righteousness, character, integrity. They don't know any verse. They just know you're judging me. Nobody's going to evaluate me. Nobody's going to input my life. Nobody's going to say anything I want to hear. Nobody's going to challenge me to change. God, you don't even know how much I hear that. That's what I hear when I hear that. I hear, I hear it with that. That's how I hear it. So what happens? So what we do is in church, I'm just telling you, and and I'm getting to this. This is really important, though. So what we do as pastors is we turn our churches into Burger King. And what we do is we just have these meetings and say to everybody, well, then you just have it your way. As long as you're coming and you're and you're giving and we can keep the program going, whatever you want, that's fine with me. I don't care. I don't I don't care if you, you know, uh, put stars in your lawn and cut goat's head and dance around it. I don't give a rip. Have it your way. We sprinkle our services with just enough superficial fairy dust to make sure everybody's comfortable. Keep it shallow. Shy away from any doctrine. Don't talk doctrine. People don't want doctrine. No, no, no. They just want, they just want something relevant. Well, I tell you, it's pretty relevant. If you're weak and you're sick and you're dying, I'd say that's pretty relevant. I mean, you ask somebody that's in the hospital that's got a terminal prognosis and they've got days to live if death is not relevant. It's relevant. But this is what we want to do. We just want to keep it shallow. Uh, Let's just stay away from the doctrine, stay away from any truth boundaries. Everyone is happy because their view, no matter what their view is, is affirmed. And they can hear their view affirmed in whatever's said because it's so shallow, it can mean anything. Because we are, this is what's said, and I'm putting this in quotation marks, we are a no-judgment zone, so you can do as you please. Now, I wish I could preach on Matthew 7, 1. Because it is true, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. But read on, he says, for with the same measure ye meet out, it shall be judged back to you. The key, the key is not that we can't evaluate. He also said that you know a man by his fruit. How can you know a man by his fruit if you aren't making some evaluation? Judgment has to deal with a declaration of eternal destiny. I don't have time to get into all of that. I'm just simply saying this is the era we're living in. So how can a man examine himself rightly without God either laughing or being incredibly aggravated? Because here we are with the truth of his word, but it won't be applied into our life. And then we have the audacity to say, I can judge myself. There's a story that uh, is told of Wesley. I, I, I love Wesley. He had an interesting life and it's, it comes from the 1730s. Wesley had an original trip to America. In fact, he was down towards Savannah in the 1730s. And it was before he had his Aldersgate experience. And while he was there... Uh, there were several things that he was doing. He was doing some outreach to the Indian population. He was ministering to the colony there. And apparently he got into a relationship 
with a lady by the name of uh, Sophia Hopke. Sophia Hopke. She was in some way in the family tree of the governor. And so he's in this relationship. And from everything we can ascertain, it looked like maybe it was going somewhere. Like this could be the, the one he would marry. And then all of a sudden it's broken off. Now, we don't know why it was broken off. We don't know what was going on. You know, who knows? But what happened was, is that I suspect because she felt either embarrassed or jilted or whatever the case may be, she quit coming to church for a while, apparently quite a long while. And uh, then after a a lengthy time of being away, and apparently she was uh, uh, taught this as well, that there might be some difficulty being away from church for so long that she would come to the communion table. And it's how they handled those things then. She actually showed up at church one day. She came down to the communion table in order to receive communion. And Wesley would not serve her at the communion table. Now, can you imagine that today? I mean, I'm just chuckling because I'm imagining it right now. Can you imagine that today? Standing there. And, and, and I don't know, just saying, you, oh, yeah, you're okay. You you don't even get up. You don't, don't eat. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine that happening today? Don't even bother. You're okay. I mean, I mean, just think about that for just a minute. Well, what happened was is that she got married, and because her honor was impugned, her husband actually was aggravated with Wesley, took him to court. He was exonerated in court. But but then because he was exonerated, as best as we can figure out, he hired people to try to kill him. And so Wesley literally had to be smuggled out of Savannah, put on a ship, and he sailed back uh, to England. And it was through that experience that his heart was strangely warmed at Aldersgate. But I, I know that story that surrounded the communion table. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't know all the facts behind what took place. And in his journals, he doesn't tell us everything. But I can understand a little bit of Wesley's thought process or even frustration. Because he's looking at people who are coming to the table and they trivialize this moment. It's a classic problem. What do you do with, with the congregation? You have some who are warm-hearted. They love this. They're in tune. There are others that they, this is, they're clueless. It's simply cultural. They do this because it's just the thing to do. How do you work this? And if you try to police it, who's to even say you can get that right? While no one may kill you as a pastor today, I can assure you, I'm not going to be driven insane by the words, you're judging me. That'll kill you. You're judging me. You're judging me. Nobody gets to judge me. How do we deal with this? It says, let a man examine himself. That's what Paul said. Let a man examine himself. Say, well, what might a self-examination look like? Well, let's explore that for just a minute. What would a self-examination look like? I think it involves at least two important things. A self-examination. Number one, introspection. Everyone say introspection. Yeah, introspection is looking inside. You know, some, some are good at this. There are some people, I, I don't know whether it's a personality thing or I, I'm not exactly sure, but they're pretty good at introspection. Some of us, listen, and, I, and I'm probably one of them. So, so listen to me because I'm one of you that I'm about ready to talk to. Some of us are terrible at it. We never look inside. We never consider anything deeper than what's happening in front of us at the moment. 
But introspection, I think, is tied into a self-evaluation because it means being able to look at yourself in the light of reality and to look at yourself in the light of His Word. Now, that would entail several things. Number one is that you would know it. The other is, is that you could at least you could at least evaluate yourself in a way that would be appropriate. Can you, can you just see beyond the obvious? You know, a self-evaluation isn't just, you know, just simply merely, oh, I got a hair there. A self-evaluation isn't, Self-evaluation, you understand, is a little deeper than these things. Self-evaluation is when you rummage around in the back of the closet. For those of you that may do a spring cleaning or deep cleaning in your home, you know, every now and then, hopefully, on occasion, you might get into the closet that never gets opened and that nobody ever gets to open. But every now and then you need to open it. And the amazing thing, whenever we do this at our house... It was so funny this week because uh, Kaylin and my wife were pulling out all these things out of rooms and closets and they were taking them down to the consignment store because they were figuring out how they were going to make some money on this in order that they could do something else. And it was funny watching because they'd be rummaging around in these closets and then you could hear them from the back of the closet going, oh, look what I found. They hadn't seen it for years. I forgot I had this here. I forgot this was stuff back in the back. That's introspection. It's rummaging around in the closets of your heart. It's looking in the dresser drawer of your heart that hasn't been opened in years. It's where you've been stuffing things in there. Listen, introspection isn't just about the fact, well, I hadn't been to any bars this week. Well, good for you. It's deeper than that. How about is there any bitterness in the back of that closet? How about is there any unforgiveness in the back of that closet? How about is there any, any unspoken lust, and not just in the sexual sense, but even in the power sense, in the money sense? Is there greed back in there? Come on, who's going to reach in there? Begin to dig your closet out. Introspection. Is there ever a moment in the life of the church that we stop for just one minute and ask ourselves the tough question because we ain't letting anyone else ask it? Somebody said, well, Ed, you're the pastor. You ought to come live my life and try asking those questions. Now, some, I, I, I'll give a lot of you credit. You're probably better than the vast majority of church folk. But I'm just here to tell you, not in our current era. Mm-mm-mm. You can't ask those questions. Not without someone going, you've just misjudged me. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I've, I've, you know what? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And all I have to do is listen to you for about 10 minutes and I got your heart. Well, don't bring the Bible into it. That confuses everything. <laughs> Who gets to ask that? If nobody gets to ask it, because that's the era we're living in. We're living in this, this self-actualized, this, this individualized, rugged individualism, libertarian. I mean, that's this whole struggle. We want our personal liberty, liberty back because we don't want government involved. And I understand maybe as a political philosophy, that's a smart move. But the problem is our whole life surrounds us and ain't nobody going to tell us nothing. And our problem is if God doesn't have an ability to tell you something, you're going to be in a heap of trouble. 
So who gets to ask it? If no one's going to get to do that in your life, then guess what? Let a man examine himself. You're going to have to learn what it means to rummage around in your closet. To look deeply at why you are like you are. Why is it that life shakes out like it shakes? Ask yourself some, some questions. Introspection. And then this links up with number one. Number two is then discernment. Discernment. Because he says here, he says, let a man examine himself in verse 28. And then in verse 29, he says, because we're not examining ourselves right, obviously, because they're drinking in an unworthy manner in verse 29. It says that you drink judgment to yourself, not discerning the Lord's body. Discernment. Discernment is like spiritual intuitiveness. It's like insight, perception that leads you to a good judgment. Discernment. Discernment isn't just seeing beyond the obvious, but discernment is seeing beyond the obvious that will lead you to a better decision. That's discernment. It's the ability, the true ability to distinguish between right and wrong at a deeper level. You know, some things are right and wrong at a superficial level. I mean, hopefully we we can say, you know, something to the effect of like, like, uh, oh, well, let's just say it like this, like, Keeping my marriage strong, good. Committing adultery, bad. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Well, wait, wait, wait. We're in, we're in America. That may not be. That may, that may take more discernment. See, that's our problem. Our problem is we're self-actualizing. I deserve. God would want me. I feel led. I miss God's will the first time. That's, that's, those are the games you see we're playing in this self-evaluation. Instead of understanding the covenants that we've made and how that affects the next decisions. These should be obvious decisions, but now we've even put them to discernment. But I'm even going, I'm even going beyond these things. Discernment is be, being able to, to see deeply into a matter. I mean, there's always going to be in the, in the body of Christ a, a wide and different variance. And I understand this. As a pastor, I have certain convictions in my life. That, that are my convictions. It doesn't mean that the body has to function under this particular conviction because it's my conviction. Because God has spoken to me on this. But the thing that I'm always amazed at is how it, at times, not everyone, but at times it's amazing how God doesn't speak to anyone else about that. He, why hasn't he, has he ever talked to you about what movie you go see? Has he ever talked to you about that? Has he ever asked you just to get up out of a theater sometime when his name's been blasphemed a dozen times and just simply saying, I can't do this anymore? I mean, at what point do we do? See, these are self-examination questions. I'm not the one that's going to say you, you can go, you can go to PG, but you can't do PG 13 or this. Do you understand? That is just, I don't even want the job. But if we can't examine ourselves in just how we function in culture, how are we going to examine ourselves when we come to the table of the Lord? Who gets to do this? When do you ask yourself the question? Is this when, 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 when do you use the channel changer on that program? I'm not telling you you can't watch that program. I'm just saying, at what point does it go over your line? Or do you have a line? Now, now you see, I haven't even gotten your stuff yet. And some of you are feeling the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost is doing this. Introspection. Introspection. Discernment. These are the things that I believe self-evaluation have to have. Now, what should be done with these two things practically? I'm going to give you what. We're coming down 
for landing here. What should we do with these two things practically? Number one, I think we should exercise ruthless honesty. Ruthless honesty. I like that word ruthless. You don't get to use it much in church life. Because normally ruthless is associated with something bad. They're ruthless. You don't want to hang around them. But here's the deal. In this case, it may be good. Ruthless honesty. Is my relationship with the Lord healthy? Is it? Come on, just ask yourself the question. No one else gets to ask that question. Because the minute they ask it, you're going, you're judging me. Is it healthy? Is it up to date? Are you where you know he wants you to be? Ask yourself. No one else gets to ask that question. Ask yourself. Ask yourself, are you compromised in any way? Are you compromised in other relationships? Are you compromised on your computer? Are you compromised in maybe your speech? Are you compromised in how you are at church and maybe how you are at home? No one gets to ask that. You don't even let your family ask that question. Let a man examine himself. Do you have convictions? Are you living out any convictions? Have you asked the Holy Spirit what he would like for you to embrace in your life? Have you violated your conscience? Are you living in private as you appear in public? You know, there's an interesting verse I ran across this week in Psalm 81:15. Look at this. It says, but the haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. Listen, just keep that up there for just a second. Pretend. Pretend. Are you a pretender? Do you pretend one thing, but in actuality, you're another thing? Nobody gets, nobody gets to say this, but my question is, does anybody, does anybody here have the honesty, ruthlessly, just to begin to ask themselves these questions? You exercise ruthless honesty. If you want to know, this is the amazing thing. We, we, you can fool people, but you can't fool God. And, and the problem is, is that people may affirm you as you're fooling them, but God knows the truth. And maybe it's good for pastor just to get back to this thing that says, God, no one else may know, but God knows. God knows. Just as he knows your little acts of righteousness that nobody affirms you over, and he sees what you do, and he knows what you're doing, and he can honor and bless that, he sees those compromises too. And we got to get back to that understanding. God really sees and God really knows. Number two. What should be done with the introspection and the discernment? Well, ask the Holy Spirit to point out any area displeasing to him. How about that? Do you hear the Holy Spirit talk to you about certain convictions you need to have? And are you living out the ones you have? Are you living that out? You know, we're living in a really interesting day. In some ways, it's a hard day to live as a Christian. But in other ways, it's kind of an easier day. I was thinking about this the other day. Now, it's hard in the sense that if you, if you really embrace Christian values, you could get a little harassment or people poke fun at you. But truth of the matter is we are living in such a bizarre spiritual era that you could literally hold on to convictions. And if you'll just hold on to it like they're normal, people will probably respect you. I find it interesting that just I'm just throwing it out there for you to consider. There are more and more people, for example that are finding out that smoking and drinking may not be the best thing. They are Christian, 
They're just, they're just healthy and want to be healthy. And so they've just eliminated some of these, some of these vices out of their life in order that they can have more healthy lifestyles and they function. And and it's just like, this is normal, but not us. Oh no, we, we want to be so trendy and so like the world. We, we feel like we got to identify with them in drunkenness and all sorts of things. And that was the Corinthian problem. There was no distinguishing between them and the world. It had all come flooding in. Will you let the Holy Spirit talk to you about this? Don't hear me. Forget my voice. Hear the Holy Spirit's voice. Are you happy that the Holy Spirit loves you so much that He comes to you at moments like this, at legacy where you never expected it, and He uses a voice that's simply asking questions, and He loves you so much that your heart is going like this right now? That's the Holy Spirit saying, listen, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Will you respond and deal with that conviction? Will you quit trying to stuff it into another drawer of your life and just finally get in the light and walk in the light as he is in the light and let his blood cleanse you from all unrighteousness? Amen. Ask the Holy Spirit. I think it entails that. And then finally, this is, this is the place that's really good. Number three is we, we, we find our place of assurance. This is very important. It's a very important point, this third one. Because as you answer the above questions, you must realize that no one can do this on their own. Let me tell you something. If we are left to our own devices, we will fail. If we are left to our own strength, there's not enough. If I am left to my own smarts, intelligence, wittiness, whatever it may be, it will never be enough to bring me to the place where I feel like like I'm okay with God. As you answer the above questions, you realize that you have the opportunity to cast everything upon Him. And as you cast all your cares, as you cast all your sins, as you cast all your anxieties, as you cast all your worries, as you cast all your diseases, as you cast all your hang-ups, as you cast it all on Him. Here's the good news. He takes them all on Himself and He substitutes Himself with you in order that the life of God might come into your life in order that the Scripture is true. Greater is He that is in you than he that's in the world. You say, I can't live this, Pastor. Hey, Pastor can't live this either. But it's not me that has to live it. It's Christ in me that can live this. And when Christ is in me, living this out, His blood is flowing. The cross is efficacious. His power is there. What happens is I have the ability to step up and I walk in assurance. Not not because, did I get mad this week? Yeah, I, I got irritated this week. I had a day this week. I told Trace, I was about halfway through the day and I said, you know what? This must be, this must be a test day for me and God just didn't let me know that today was going to be test day. Because it didn't matter where I went. I had to deal with people. Maybe this never happens to you. People. Now, people. 
And, 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 and this is what I try to say to myself. I try to say, what must God see? What must, I mean, and I mean, it was just all I could do. And my, my wife was sitting there the whole time going, honey, it's a test. Honey, it's a test. Pass the test. Remember what you teach. I want to remember what I teach. I want to hit somebody right now. See, I can't believe, hey, you may not believe that's how I feel sometimes. Welcome to the human race. We all feel that way on occasion. We all feel tried and weary and tested and tempted. You're not going to get out of your temptation. Let me tell you, everybody's going to have temptation this week. Amen. I'm going to preach temptation sometime. You all, you all going to have temptation. But the Bible says that there's no temptation given unto men that we do not have the capacity to arise and overcome it. So as much as I want to give somebody the five fingers of the ascension gifts, <laughs> hallelujah, there is a Savior inside, at work, restraining me. And sometimes he'll even go into the King James Version and say, restraineth me. Seems more powerful that way. And, and, and so did I come today and say to myself, God, you, you, were, you were angry today. Some of you, are, I, I know this because I just know this. You were, this happened to us all the time, we, when, especially with our kids growing up. Every time our kids, through a week, I mean, we, I had Clay and Tyler. Now, Kaylin's been, you know... An exceptional child. But, but I, had, I had two boys. There, there wasn't a week that I, it didn't go through my mind to tie them up and put duct tape on their mouth and <laughs> shove them in a closet somewhere. There wasn't a week. I mean, we went through years there where we'd look at each other and said, will they live? Some of you had children, you know what I'm talking about. And there is no more guilt-producing moment than when you're just, you're just, God, because you're wanting them to get it, and you're wanting to teach them and to help them, and to be, and, and, but there's something in you that says they're not getting it. I will give it to you. And that doesn't happen often. I mean, it's, it, I, what I'm saying is, is though you just, but then you're done with it, and you're just ridden with this guilt. And I'm just here to say, there's nobody perfect, no, not one. None righteous, no, not one. But just because there's none righteous, no, not one, does not mean I cannot say, Lord, reach into the closet. Dig around in those dresser jars of my heart and find, find what that is that, that I'm, not, I'm not as patient maybe as you would want me to be or I, I don't have understanding like you would want me to have it. And, and the Lord will come and He will forgive it forgiveness is necessary he can cleanse if cleansing is necessary and you can keep your assurance come on assurance you got to get to the place of your assurance you don't have to come to the table fearful you don't have to come to the table guilt-ridden no 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 he never intended that to be he wants you to come to the table anticipating and expecting and and certainly joyful and realizing what it is he's provided but he doesn't want you to come with your hands dirty he says why don't you go wash your hands before you come to my table why don't you go cleanse your heart 
before you come to my table. Now, I understand you can't cleanse it, but his blood can cleanse it. You say, well, what if I choose, Pastor, just to fake it? Well, I, this is much I'll tell you. Nobody, nobody's going to chase you down. Chances are good, though, that you're not fooling anybody. Chances are good. You know, I found this out, that while we fool a lot of people around us, you probably aren't fooling your family, number one. And, and, and secondly, I can tell you, you're not, you're not fooling God. But if you want to go along in that, in that deception that you can fake it and no one will ever know, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to expose it right now. There are people that know. I think it's kind of compared to like other self-examinations in life. You know, I, you know, some of us have to watch the markings on our body, the moles and the, and the skin things. Because if we don't take self-examinations and there's a strange mole or marking that comes up, you know, that could be melanoma. And if I choose not to self-examine, what happens? Well, I bring judgment on myself. The doctor didn't give me melanoma. God didn't give me melanoma. You know what gave me melanoma? What gave you melanoma was untold hours on the beach getting fried. That's what gave you the skin disease. And, and, and truth of the matter is we're all under a judgment. And if we don't self-examine, we're going to end up bringing judgment upon ourselves. Ladies, you know, you do self-examinations for breast cancers. You do these self-examinations. You can choose not to, but if you choose not to, what happens is, is that you may end up being under the sentence of death because you did not self-examine rightly. And that's what Paul was simply saying. He was saying, I can't police it. There's nothing I can do to turn anyone away. Yes, people will come flippant and arrogant, and they've been doing it for centuries, but this is what Paul says. If you choose not to examine your heart rightly, he says, you'll walk away weak and you'll walk away sick and you'll die before your time that's what he says it's just like you didn't check your skin right it's not god that's killing you you're killing yourself because you refuse to examine but the good news this is where we're going to leave it with the good news amen there is good news miracles can happen this morning miracles can take place God doesn't work with the fakers, but He will work with the humble. And He'll work with the honest. And He'll work with the transparent. These are the things that are huge in God's eyes. He's not about perfection in His people. He's about transparency in His people. David was far from perfect, but he always got to the right place because... He had the ability to just write like he did in Psalm 51 when he said, My transgression is always before me. Cleanse me with hyssop. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. These things he said publicly. And God, in his imperfection, would swoop in and restore his friend David to the place again of assurance and righteous standing. You know, every now and then I scratch my head at how incredibly merciful God is that he will take defective people, me being one of them, and yet he'll work in them and still say, you're mine, you're mine. All he's asking is that we're just honest before him. Last week, miracles started to break forth. I'm believing for miracles again today. 
We're going to prepare our hearts right now to come to the table of the Lord. And I'd like to ask before we do that, with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Noah, I'm going to go ahead and ask you, Noah, if you don't mind to go ahead and start preparing the table. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody moving yet. The only requirement we've said for weeks now to come to the table of the Lord is that you know, number one, for certain that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. It's a believer's table. It's not a cultural table. It's not, it's not open in the sense of just come and do as you please. It's those that would recognize the fact that they were sinners. They needed a Savior. They've accepted the provision that Christ has offered in their life. And they're born again. That's the table. It's not, it's not just for Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans. It's, it's for believers that have embraced him. But here's the deal. The deal is, is that we need to come clean-hearted, clean-handed. We need to be up to date. I just, I just believe that to be so. I believe the table is that moment that we can self-examine and say, you know, I've let some areas slip in my life. I need to get back on target. I've compromised myself in a couple of these areas over here, and it's time to just say, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. I, I want to get back really on a track that's pleasing to you. At this point, I'll be honest with you, I'm not dealing with the theological ramifications. I'm just dealing with the practical ramifications at this moment that you are able to come, and the table is not a source of judgment to you, but it becomes a source of power and blessing to you. That's what the Lord wants it to be. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask this, and we're all going to pray together, and then we'll come to the table of the Lord. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, Right now, if you have never accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if there's never been a moment that you've opened up your heart and said yes to Him and asked forgiveness for sin, repented, turned around, started walking a new direction, I'm going to ask you in just a minute just to lift your hand. I'm not going to give an invitation. The table will be its own invitation. I'm going to ask you, though, to lift your hand in just a moment. The second group are those of you that are saying, Pastor, you know what? There are just some areas in my life. You just ask questions. You didn't say anything in particular, but you asked some questions, and the Holy Spirit used those questions for me to do some self-examination. And there's some areas that need to get in the light and under the blood. Here's the good news. You can do that right now, and you can get your assurance again. It'll light up in your heart. More than anything, He wants, he wants to have a free-flowing, full-flowing relationship with you. He doesn't want you to be alienated in any way, shape, or form. That's how he wants you to come to the table, with every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, this is your transparency moment. I should be the only one looking around right now. This is your transparency moment. I'm not going to come chase you down later. I'm not going to put you on the spot. But you've got to be honest enough right now before God in his house just simply to say, Lord, I'm either accepting you right now as my personal Savior or I'm getting some things right right now before I come to the table of the Lord. All right? This is between you and God on the count of three. Just lift your hand and keep it up for just a moment. One, two, three. Lift your hand. Lift your hand. 
Yeah, their hands all over. Hallelujah. Father, you see these hands right now. We're going to pray together. But Lord, I ask that your assurance would fall on these folks today. That their confidence would come back as they're honest with you. Lord, you don't want anyone to be bound by guilt. But the only way out of guilt is to be able to be honest with you and put it under the light and under the blood. And you'll free them from every ounce of guilt. Do that in these remaining moments in Jesus' name. I want everyone to stand with me.